0: Our focus together this Easter time is the notion that the resurrection is the beginning of the beginning, or the beginning of the end, that is to say, the end of God bringing to completion what He intends, and that it gives birth to a new world. But this does not seem plain. It it can sometimes even seem like we're kidding ourselves, like just kind of Christian or religious rhetoric. Because what's in front of our face day in and day out is so much suffering and hardship and, as Revelation would put it, tribulation. But our reading this morning in the Revelation of God to John is the testimony of the church, the people of God, who have made it to the other side. And they see that God is trustworthy and true. And that he actually comes through for his people. But again, I mean, keeping it real, can't that just seem like rhetoric when you can't find a job, or your spouse is dying, or you have a kid frighteningly in the hospital? It can't just seem like rhetoric. And even a phrase from Revelation this morning, if you want to look at your text, this notion that every tribe and nation and people and language will be there all in unison and in harmony relating to one another can just sound like rhetoric against the current backdrop of racism and class warfare and religious hatred and ethnic strife and fights over power, et cetera, et cetera, right? It can seem like, uh, I don't know, maybe, but it feels like kind of a wish that there would ever be a time under God in which every nation, tribe, people, and language would be together. So though we accept this tension full on, we don't live in denial, We as followers of Jesus seek to live into this new reality. Look, as John heard in Revelation, I am making everything new. And so during this season of Easter, we're spending our Sundays learning without denial, as I say, to follow Jesus in a world with these seemingly intractable human problems. And we do so precisely by holding to this vision. God is making all things new. So in Revelation 7, if you want to get out your order of worship and look at this passage with me, it's an invitation to see and receive a vision of life as it really is, and as it will increasingly be. And this vision is placed before us against the backdrop of a merely scientific view of what it means to be human. I can't remember, I was reading something somewhere this week, and I I found this little story that um, I think this, this comes from a, uh, a commencement speech that Dallas Willard had given somewhere. And he tells the story. Of, he says, some, some months ago, someone did a study of a certain type of chimpanzee. And they discovered that this chimpanzee possessed 99.4% of human DNA. Like, did you catch that? This chimpanzee had 99.4% Same DNA as a human being. And when you read that kind of thing, like on the Huffington Post or something, what's the conclusion you're supposed to draw? The conclusion you're supposed to draw is you're not much different than a chimpanzee, right? It's not meant to give you the vision that you're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That the story of Revelation 7 is your story. The conclusion you're supposed to draw is you're very much like a chimp. And so Dallas read this, and because Dallas loved and for his whole life really studied the intersection of science and philosophy, that was kind of his hobby, though he was technically a phenomenologist and studied Husserl, his his real passion was kind of the intersection of science and philosophy. So he says he began to talk to some of his colleagues at USC up in L.A. about this. And he said, I think we should consider giving a chimp a Ph.D., Certainly Dallas said to his scientific friends if chimps have 99.4% of DNA and DNA is what we really are then some chimps would do better on tests than our current students right just statistically speaking you put that on a bell curve and some of these chimps are going to actually do better you know on their dissertation proposals than some of our current students But Dallas says no one who thought about it would suggest that 99% of 99.4% of DNA translates into 99.4% of human experience. Now, if you're at all intellectually honest, you have to ask the question, why? If we're almost just like a chimp, but everyone knows these two experiences are not at all the same, then to be at all fair, one has to ask, why? What's the differentiating factor? And the differentiating factor is you are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an incredible future in God's new heavens and earth. And chimps, as cute as they are, just aren't. Not in the same way that you are. So the conclusion we should draw from this is the vision we see in Revelation, that we humans are a great deal more than DNA. We are spiritual beings. And this is an aspect of of the vision that's given to us in Revelation, that as never-ceasing human beings, there will come a time where from every nation, tribe, people, and language, there will be a unity. And then look at your text. This is a sneaky little word. God sees, or John sees them standing. Standing meaning they've been rescued by God. They've made it through suffering and fear and hopelessness, and they've come to find that God is real. He is true, and he's good. And so this word from God is, was meant to give John in the midst of the suffering he and the church were going through and to give to us faith that in the midst of the world's, all, all the world's forms of evil, God is real and true and good. And then look at this phrase. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now this question that I'm about to set before you is I think an important question worthy of a little consideration this morning. Here's the question, to whom does salvation belong? This is a question of clarity and of loyalty. Because when John sees this and writes it, he's deeply aware in his heart and soul, his mind and his spirit, he and and his um, fellow followers of Jesus are deeply aware of the power and influence of Rome and that it is real. And it's a pretension to ultimate power. And I think it wants us to then ask, well, what are the current alternative offers or pretensions being offered to us today? And the various heirs to power that these potential or pretensive powers put on. Well, Let's think of a couple. For how many of your neighbors or colleagues in the workplace is not real power in politics? And in our day, the farther you go left or the farther you go right, there's salvation, right? I mean, come on, just keeping it real? That's where the pretense is. Certainly not in moderate or compromise or, no, you go further to the left, there is the answer. Or no, you go further and further to the right, and there's the pretense of an answer. Or technology, or science, or sexual freedom, or experience-based consumerism, you know, taste, touch, go. But I want you to just consider with me for a minute, just give me a little bit of your intellectual energy here for a minute to consider the brutality that actually undergirds those pretending rulers they're brutal just think of the rhetoric that surrounds left and right um, political discourse it's brutal it brutalizes technology i had a student say to me this week with you could tell a real mix like total honesty and a real mixture of like confused heartache who we, I think we were talking about silence. And, and this kid said to me, Todd, if I don't answer a text within a few seconds, I can be a social outcast. That's brutal. I'm, th- you find a better word if you want. That's brutal. That's soul-destroying. That's fear-based. But technology says, no, we'll fix everything, you know, sort of, we'll save everything. Or science, you know, think of the brutality of having to submit to ever-shifting scientific norms. Look, I'm up on science. I find it fascinating. I'm not down on science. I'm just saying once the scientific community has decided something is true, if you don't submit to that, you will be brutalized in the academy, in grant writing, in whatever. But no one ever stops to say when 10 years later, science discovers that what they were saying 10 years ago wasn't true. No one ever stops to say, we're sorry we beat the crap out of you in faculty meetings for 15 years. No one ever does that. Because that, the, the nature of that kind of power is to brutalize. Or think of sex promising to save us. Well, you know, it, it, it's just, again, it can be brutal that you just can be so bound to what someone thinks is right or good about a tradition. And I could go on and on and on. You know, the experience-based consumer notion. You have to go everywhere, taste everything, do everything. And if you don't do it, you're such a loser. Right? That's brutalizing. We brutalize each other. So this is why it's so important that we notice this aspect of the vision given to us in Revelation, that actually what we are is never-ceasing human beings who one day will stand before God knowing that salvation belongs to Him. Because once we begin to see this clearly and begin to trust in it, then you can pick a path for life amongst those other brutalizing offers that are currently before us. And come, if you look at your text again, to see as these who have come through and made it to the other side, and they see how good and right it is to serve God day and night. How those who made it through will never again hunger or thirst, can't be manipulated anymore by consumerism. They find that the things that we've talked about above are all impotent idols, like technology and science and sexual freedom and all that, these are actually impotent idols who can't fulfill hunger and thirst, but God does. Why? Look at the next line. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. This is the picture of definitive power. But if you think with me again another second here, Power alone is not automatically good. For instance, the the power and raw physical strength of an evil man is actually a frightening reality, right? If you confront a man you know to be evil or a woman who has great power, that raw power, physical or whatever it might be, is not automatically good. It's only the power of a good person, a good God, that's comfort. You see, it's the other attributes that someone possesses that determine how his power should be viewed. And this is why in the Psalms, and I could cite lots of them, but just a couple, this is why the Psalms are so full of attestations to God's goodness. For instance, 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good. The hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 31, how abundant is your goodness. And we see the picture of this in this next line in Revelation that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is to say, all who have suffered, which includes all of us in this room and everybody who's ever lived, all who have suffered, and our text, if you look at it, depicts it as hunger and thirst and scorching heat. The suffering is a part of every life, but it's never the end. The end is divine comfort for those who trust in God. As our text in John said, and Beth reminded me, us, no one can snatch us out of his hand, not even death. In fact, ironically, death is a doorway to him. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Our reading in John, just before we conclude, I I want you to see that our reading in John helps us really profoundly this morning because, as I've said, we, we live in this tension, this time between the times where every bit of Christian thinking and Christian theology for 2,000 years has said that a new world is being born in the resurrection of Christ. Yet for 2,000 years, we have vast human problems. And so there's this decision that sits before us. And it's part imaginative, it's part psychological, it's part intellectual, it's a, it's a very subtle th- complex thing that sits before all of our minds. And one way to think about the work of John in his gospel, and one way kind of to even outline the gospel of John, is to see that he shows us Jesus doing things, he lets us hear Jesus teaching things, and then he almost always shows us the reaction of the crowds. It's like he's just constantly setting before us, you have this decision to make about Jesus. You have this decision to make about what's real. What's real? about what genuine power is, and how genuine power works with humanity. So John lifts Jesus up, helps us to hear his voice amongst all the other voices that clamor for our attention, and then he tells us about the reactions and decisions of people. We didn't read the paragraph or so before this, but we had. If we had, we would have seen that Jesus was just accused of having a demon. Caught that, didn't you? He was accused of being out of his mind. In the chapter before this, the people of his day were calling him a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. So this tension we feel, even when you could concretely see its inbreaking in the deeds of Jesus, his expressions of power over sickness, over disease, over the demonized, over the dead, even when he expressed his power and taught, there were people who didn't get it. But this is what we're invited into. I want you just as we close here this morning to as closely as you can right now imagine your mind a desert landscape. You know dust and dryness as far as you can see but right in the middle of it a spring of water bubbles up and it forms relatively speaking you know a small pool of life. Maybe you can Picture a, a super dry part of the continent of Africa. You've all seen this on National Geographic. There's this little pool of water. And the animals all come around it as the sun sets every day to try to drink. Got that picture? Now, there's what you need to get. The spring and the pool are in the desert. But they are not of it they are of and experiencing a completely different reality. They don't partake. The water doesn't partake in the nature of the desert sand. The water's nature is that of rain and snow and unnoticed streams far away on mountains that feed these little springs that are hidden underneath the earth in these little passageways that find a little place in the desert to bubble up. And this is a picture of the abundant life in its fullest sense. Life from hidden sources that come to the soul from God and His kingdom. This is why you never have to live in denial. You never have to deny your pain, your confusion, systemic injustice, hopelessness in politics, whatever your thing is, you never have to live in denial. The invitation of God is always to fully face reality, knowing that whatever it is, there are hidden sources that can nourish your soul from God and his kingdom. And such an abundant life is possible no matter where you are or what you happen to be doing or experiencing. This is precisely the Easter kingdom reality into which Jesus invites all of us to live. Now as we bow our heads for a quiet moment, I think this morning I'd like to give you a prayer. Now of course you can interact here however the Holy Spirit might be leading you, but if you need a little leading, maybe this would be a good prayer for all of us. Oh God, help us not to settle into the values of our global contemporary empire. Rather, help us to focus our eyes on the Easter vision of a new world growing in our midst. Once again, God, help us not to settle into the values of our global contemporary empire. Rather, we pray, help us to focus our eyes on the Easter vision of a new world growing in our midst.